Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. All right, well, we are going to be in Philippians chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. But before we do, I want to pray for us, and we'll jump into God's Word. Father, I do pray that we would know your presence right now by your Holy Spirit. Father, that you would awaken us, that you'd uh, arouse the sleepy, that you help us to wake up, uh, that you'd fix our mind's eye on you and on your Word, that you'd stir in our hearts for that which is true, and cause our affections to be excited for um, that which is glorious, and that which you have in store for us. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name, and by your Holy Spirit, amen. And everyone says, all right, you guys awake? Kind of. Yeah, I'm like, I'm still trying to get there a little bit today, to be honest, like it was a long day yesterday, but uh, it's getting to be that time of year where we all get a little bit tired. It's good to, sometimes when you're in that place to remember um, kind of the, the, the basics, to go back to the basics. I remember uh, playing football in high school. One of the things we used to do at the beginning of the season every year, our coach would start to uh, drill us in the basics, and he would go back. And I remember there was one play that our coach would say, this is our bread and butter play. And it was a 24, it was an off tackle, uh, run up, kind of just off tackle, and he would call that play, and I remember him saying, look, this is our bread and butter play. If we don't run this play to perfection, we will not succeed as a team. And so he would drive that in, and we would practice it, we'd practice it. And I remember the first scrimmage, we'd come, and he, said, he looked at us and said, we, this entire drive, we're going to run one play. And we're going to run the same play over and over and over, and I don't care if they know it's coming, we will tell them it's coming, but we've got to be able to get four yards on this play every time. If we don't average that, we will not reach our goals as a team this year. And so we practiced, and we practiced, and we practiced. And he said, even our, our greatest throwing plays are going to come off of this one play. If we don't know this play, we're never going to succeed. Do you know the church has a play like that too? A play that is the most essential, basic thing that we have to execute. And if we don't execute it, we'll never reach the objectives that God has for us. And so we're going to look at that today. We're going to jump back in, and we're going to look at some of the basics of what we are um, to be about. We're going to look at Philippians 3. We're going to start in verse 17 and look at this primary play in the life of the church. Philippians 3.17 starts and says this, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you are now enemies, uh, now, uh, uh, I'm sorry, for many whom I have often told you And now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Their minds are on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, My joy and my crown stand firm 
thus in the Lord, my beloved. So today what I want to do is I want to show you seven plumb lines from this passage, seven discipleship plumb lines. These are principles that guide and set the standard of what each of us should be about. These are things that, that, that ought to drive and compel us forward. These are the bread and butter play that we, bread and, uh, these describe the bread and butter play of the church, uh, the, 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 the main meal that we serve, the thing that we point people to. So we're going to look at seven discipleship plumb lines, and we're just going to unpack it as we look through these verses. So let me give you number one to start with. You only have to be one step ahead to say, follow me. I, I know that's complex. Think about it for a minute. Like, you, you just got to be one step ahead of someone to say, follow me, and then you got to keep going. And then you just got to get them to keep going with you. And Paul starts off and he says that, he says, imitate me. It's often said that imitation is the greatest form of flattery, but that's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying that imitation is the greatest form of teaching. That as, as I move forward and you can watch my example, you're going to learn from me how it is that you can, that you can progress in the faith. And so the point he's really making is that we learn best from real-life examples that we follow. Any of you relate to that in life? But the, the, the deepest learning that you have doesn't come from just information that's downloaded, but it comes from an example that actually shows you how to live and how to follow in their footsteps. And Paul says, uses this word imitation. He's saying, watch our example. Keep your eyes on those who walk like us. Learn this pattern of life and how it is that you can live in this way. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't say this because Paul's this super saint. He doesn't say it because he's achieved perfection or he's arrived in some sense spiritually. Remember the verses from a couple weeks ago. What Paul said was, not that I've achieved it, not that I've arrived, not that I've done all this and made it all the way to perfection. Yet, even in my weakness, I'm striving and pressing on and fighting forward in the race. And so Paul is starting there and he's saying, inasmuch as I imitate Jesus, come and follow me. And so Paul's not saying, follow me because of how great I am. He's saying, follow me because I'm a fellow struggler who's learning and pressing on in the way of trusting Jesus and following Jesus. And this is where he wants to point us to. He says this in other places in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Meaning, don't follow the junk in my life that's not right, but in as much as I look like Jesus, follow me. He goes on in First uh, Thessalonians 1, 6 and says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, meaning you, you saw our example, but we were following Jesus. So as, as we chased after Jesus, and then you chased after us, and this thing continues as we move forward. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you then became an example to all the believers. Though it's interesting here in that passage, he's talking about people that were suffering, but they came to faith in Christ for the very first time. And because they looked at what was said about the Lord and they looked at Paul's example following the Lord, even in the midst of suffering, it said that they experienced joy. And because of that, they became an example to everyone that was watching. This is what discipleship, growth, following and following Jesus looks like. And friends, I want you to know you can do this. Many of you doubt that you could ever be a disciple maker. That your first instinct when I say we're all called to make disciples is, yes, yeah, someone should do that. Someone who's not me. Someone who's an expert should do that. Someone who's been to seminary should do that. Someone who is really smart should do that. Someone who has their whole life together should do that. Someone who they don't struggle with sins the way I do should do that. Someone else should do that. But what Paul is going to say and what he's going to point us to is, 
We're all called to do this. But you can do it. You just have to be one step ahead. Um, And so I want to encourage you that this bread and butter meal of the church, this is our play. We say, follow me as I learn to follow Jesus. And we show one another how to do it. We do this in our homes as we live before our kids and say, follow me as I follow Jesus. And they look at our example. We do this with our spouses and in our relationships. Follow me as I follow Jesus. We do this at our work, in our workplaces. We do this in, in any arena we're at. We have the opportunity to engage people and say, come and follow me as I learn to follow Jesus. And you just have to be one step ahead. Friends, do you know when you serve in a kid's class that you're making disciples? You may not realize that, but you're doing what this is talking about, where Paul is saying, inasmuch as I follow Jesus, imitate me and follow me. And we're going to kids and we're saying, hey, come follow me. Come learn with me what it looks like to trust Jesus and to walk with him in all the most important areas of your life. Same thing when you serve in student ministry, as we talked a little bit ago. It's not having it all together. It's saying, hey, come learn with me how to take my mess to Jesus and watch how I learned to do that so that you can then follow him as well. That's why we want to connect everyone to small groups and serve teams in our church so that we can learn from one another and follow one another's example in walking with Jesus and learning what it means to take the stuff in your life and bring it to him and then let him reorient that and relaunch you in a new direction. This is what we're about, but it doesn't just happen through church stuff. This happens in all kinds of arenas. Uh, this, this can happen uh, well, very much outside of church programs. This happens kids at your schools. When you come alongside a brother or sister in your school and say, hey, let me come show you how to live a better, let me, let, me, let me show you how to live into a better future by trusting Jesus. It happens in our workplaces through mentoring and other opportunities that we have. We, any, any arena we have, we have the opportunity to engage someone. And here's what I, I want to encourage you in. Show one person what it looks like for you to, to walk with Jesus. And it's not having it all together. It's not saying, hey, I want to teach you everything there is to know about this book from beginning to end. That's not where we start. But we just start with, hey, follow my example. Let's learn together what it looks like to walk with Jesus and to follow him and to trust him. And so that's really how this, uh, this begins. And uh, let me say this. You, you only have to be one step ahead of the person behind you. Um, but you better not stay there. They're going to pass you up. So uh, some of us need to grow up uh, somewhat. And so it's okay to say, hey, I want to just take you, I want to invite you into something, but then to invest your life and say, and I'm going to keep learning so that you can keep coming and we can keep progressing and running after Jesus together. So that's the first plumb line is you only have to be one step ahead of the person uh, to say, follow me. Look at the second one. Discipleship happens in relationships. Uh, Paul starts verse 17, and he says, uh, my brothers. And then in chapter 4, 1, he uses that same phrase again. He says, my brothers. And in the early church, it became common to call the church family. In fact, uh, one of the the accusations of the early church in Rome to start off was, they said, well, this is a bunch of incestuous people. They're all sleeping together and stuff. Because they didn't understand what was happening when these married couples were calling each other brothers and sisters in Christ. And they're like, well, that's really weird because they're married, but the brothers and sisters, they didn't understand that when Christ brought people together, that it brought them into a new family, um, as a spiritual family. And so he, Paul starts off and he calls them brothers. And what, what we need to understand about discipleship is that it always happens in the context of relationship. And Paul's reminding them that, hey, we're connected. Uh, we're related to one another. You're my family. And that colors everything Paul's going to say. And so as he's going to call them to follow him, it's coming really through this idea of relationship. 
And it really goes back to Jewish culture. And in that world, uh, when they talked about discipleship, they talked about a teacher and a pupil. And a pupil would follow the teacher, but it wasn't just something that was like an information download. It wasn't just something that you said in a class and they passed some information down to you, but it was that you were to come underneath that teacher and you were to walk in their footsteps and you were to learn their way of life. And so you were going to learn and, and, and how, to, how to incorporate and put into practice the things that they were teaching, the example and the character and the life that they followed. Think about Jesus and his disciples. What was it that he did with his disciples? He said, come, follow me, and I'll show you how to live. And so Mark 3, it says, Jesus went up on a mountain. He called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed the 12 so that they might be with him, and he might send them out. Jesus didn't say, hey, come and watch me teach for a little bit. No, it says he called, those, he called people to him. Who were who the people he called? Those whom he desired. He wanted a relationship with them. He wanted to be in, 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 a, in a friendship with these guys. So he called people that he wanted to be with, and he said, come follow me. But he called them to be with him. There was a life-on-life life thing that was happening. It wasn't just a simple teaching time, but he was going to walk with them. And so they walked with him for three years. Um, and and had to put up with, uh, the, he had to put up with them all that time. Uh, but as he's walking, he's saying, come follow me. Two phrases, I think, jump out there. He wanted to be with them, and then he wanted them to come be with him. So this wasn't just a recruiting trip or, or a plan to create a movement. It wasn't just a church growth strategy. This was a guy calling people that he wanted to be in a relationship with and then show them how to live. He was going to pour his life into them. That's the heart of discipleship. So let's look at the third plumb line. You can't lead people until they know you love them. You see this in what Paul's doing in this passage. You notice there's no less than five different places that Paul uh, describes in distinct terms the affection he has for these friends. He says, my brothers, the ones I long to be with, my joy, my crown, my beloved. So in just a few short verses, think of all the ways he's saying, I love you. And it's, it's that foundation that he's building and he's laying that foundation of his love for them that then he's going to call them and say, now come follow me. Friends, people are not going to follow you if they don't trust you. You can't lead someone until they're convinced that you love them. And so we have to start there. And uh, if someone calls you their joy and their crown, uh, it's going to bring a smile to your face, won't it? I mean, if someone genuinely looks in the eyes and you know that they genuinely, authentically mean it, and they say, man, you're my joy. You're, the, you're like the crown on my head that I, when I won the race and they, they acknowledged me and gave me the trophy, you are my trophy in my life. And if someone speaks that way to you, there's an affection that comes. And you know that the grounds of that, if it's sincere, is going to bring a smile to your face and lift your countenance. And Paul is inviting them to follow him down the road on the basis of love. That's the foundation of everything that he's doing. It's interesting, in, uh, in verse 8, or, or a little bit later, he, he talks about even those he disagrees with, and those that he says, there's, some peop- there's a whole lot of people that are going the wrong way. And he says, and I, I'm saying this, but I'm saying it through my tears. So even those I disagree with, man, I still love them. And the grounds of even my disagreeing with their, the course of their life and where they're headed is still built on a foundation of love. And so Paul is going to continue to come back to this concept, and he weeps over those who have gone astray and turned their back because his love extends to them as well. It's interesting that there's no vindictiveness. There's no looking down on them. There's just immense sorrow 
for the choices they're making that are going to lead to ultimately their harm. Paul's always motivated by love. Friends, you realize we can disagree with someone and still care about them as people? Like, it seems crazy to have to say, but I feel like in our day we have to say something as plain as that. You can disagree with someone and still love them. You can still care for them. You can still be kind. And so uh, we, it, it's never Christian to mock, to berate, to belittle, to blow up someone who's on a path of harm. You just, you just don't see that here. In the example of Jesus, you don't see it in the example of Paul. And if we're going to follow after Jesus and follow after Paul's example, we're not going to behave that way either. Ultimately, it's about us looking at others and saying, let me show you the God of grace. Let me show you a God who loves you. And let me invite you to follow a path that's going to lead you to a better place. Not to destruction, but to, uh, but to everlasting glory. And so we lean in and we speak to them. And we can disagree with them, but we don't have to be jerks about it. You'll never lead someone until you're convinced, they're convinced that you love them. So Paul um, speaks to these people and says, they're my joy. They're the ones that, uh, that I want to take with me. They're the ones that I'm going to get to celebrate with. Friends, love is always the soil that grows healthy disciples. If we're going to grow something healthy, it's always going to come out of the soil of love. Let's look at uh, plumb line number four. The call is to follow Jesus. Verse 17 says, those who walk according to the example you have in us. When he says the example, it's the example or the pattern. It's someone that's, that's uh, kind of describing this kind of gospel pattern or approach to life. He later is going to contrast it with the enemies of the cross. So he says, let's follow the example and the pattern of life with Jesus, which is contrasted with those who are enemies of the cross. And so there's something about that that's connected here. When he talks about walking, um, he's saying that it has to do with living out the truth in your behavior and character. To walk is to infuse information or, or, or a pattern or a lifestyle into the course of your life. And that really is what Paul is talking about here. And so he speaks here of those who walk in the way of the cross, in the way of grace, in the way of those who are looking forward to heaven and to Christ's return. He says, keep one's eyes on them, notice them, look out for them, learn to discern this pattern in the way of life, <coughs> excuse me, in their way of life. In a sense, what he's saying is, you need to develop a taste for the meal um, that has the flavor of Jesus in it. Like you need to cultivate a, a, a desire and a hunger for the things of God, for the ones that, <clears throat> the things that look like Jesus. And discipleship's marked by the cross of Christ. His humility, his service, his obedience, his sacrificial love for others. And Paul gave us a taste of it all through Philippians. When he says, have this mindset in, in, in you that was like Christ, who emptied himself and became a servant and died upon a cross for us in order that he might be raised up victorious. So what Paul's saying is, look for people that have this kind of single purpose in life, whose eyes are fixed on Christ and wholeheartedly trusting in him. Look for someone who, when they're cut, they bleed grace in the gospel of Jesus. You want to you follow people like that because they're going to lead you in the right direction. But it takes a discerning eye to follow others in this pattern uh, because there's a whole lot of people that don't live in this kind of a way. Um, friends, it's interesting. I, I think sometimes it's, we, we can kind of make it more difficult than it is. But there, there's a gospel rhythm that you see in the Scripture that you see in people that trust Christ. And there's a, there, there, there's a steady beat and a steady rhythm of it. 
And we've got to learn to dance with that. We've got to learn to get and, and, and move with the groove of the gospel and, and learn how it is that the gospel speaks to us and, and learn how to flow in all of life in those kinds of ways so that we live and look like Jesus. And when we're out of step with that, um, Galatians 5 says, is when we get ourselves off course. When we're, when we're playing or dancing to a different beat. And there's many, it says, you do not walk according to the pattern of Christ. So let's look at uh, the fifth plumb line. I think this, is a, this one's important. It's easy to miss. Everyone does theology. Most of us don't think we're theologians. I hear people in church all the time say, well, I'm not a theologian. <clears throat> theology just means to study God. And every one of us has a theology that guides our life. Every one of us has a belief that shapes where we move and how we live and what the decisions we make. In verse 18, it says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now even with, tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, their minds are set on earthly things. Paul connects two interesting ideas that we typically don't connect here. He starts off and he says, They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ because they follow their natural desires and appetites. And typically, we tend to think of those as separate things. We don't think someone that's just running after the things that they want and desire, they're typically not thinking of Jesus. Paul says their approach to life, the pattern of life, the way in which they're unfolding, their, their life is unfolding, is actually contrary to the way of Jesus and to the cross of Christ. To us in our day, <clears throat> we often assume that appetites and desires are good. Uh, one of the, the staples of our world is that we kind of present this idea that your desires are to be followed, that, that, that the, ultimate, the, the ultimate life or the good life is about following your desires and feeling free to embrace all the desires uh, that you have. And yet, look at what Paul says. Um, Paul in, um, here says that their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, their end is their destruction. He makes a theological statement connected with their desires and their appetites. Their God is their stomach. It's a weird statement, isn't it? I mean, like, any of you look down and be like, oh, I'm going to worship my stomach. Like, that's just a, that's a really strange image that Paul's saying. But what he's saying is that God is the thing that orients your life. God is the thing that, that, that causes you to pivot and focus on something and pursue it. And so if God is the one that, that, that your heart affections go towards and the, and the one that your heart pursues and the one that your heart finds meaning in and finds uh, salvation in and finds, finds purpose in, then if, if your desires and your appetites are the things that orient all of your life, what Paul's saying is that's your real God. And so your stomach, your appetites, your hunger for the things of this earth become like God to you. And you really are orienting your life around them, which means you're worshiping them. Now, these are the things you think you can't live without. Something that defines your life. Now, you can read all kinds of books on addiction, and it tells you that this is exactly what happens, right? Uh, it's something that you perceive as giving your life purpose or meaning, which means it's become a God to you. Now, these are people who live only for the present. They're in the moment, but their appetites need to be satisfied right now. But their earthly appetites have become like a God to them. And so we need to understand that the earthly things he's talking about here, he's not talking about just the practical everyday stuff of life. Everyone has to pay their bills. Everyone has to cook their meals. Everyone has to clean the dishes. That's just the, the humdrum stuff of life that's, that's very earthy stuff. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking here about things that are more sensuous, self-centered, self-seeking, worldliness. He says they glory in gratifying their desires. And we see that more and more. 
because we've got a social media world that allows us to broadcast everything in our life. And because our life is oriented around, uh, around announcing uh, kind of everything that, that we're about and everything that we care about, we're posting all these things that I think ultimately are pointing us, are, are saying these actually aren't the good life. That we're portraying them as the good life or the place where meaning is really found. Now, these are people who are bound by earthly desires that turns out are actually opposed to God and they, because they doubt the goodness of his ways. So they, they would not describe themselves as enemies of the cross of Christ. But Paul's saying in the actual pattern of their life, this is what the effect is, that they're actually working contrary to the goodness of God. So friends, as we think about this, I think in our world it's, it's good to say this. Um, people often confuse the idea of love with the concept of acceptance or affirmation. And those two are not the same. To, to love someone is to seek their good. And sometimes to seek their good means that you have to point them in a new direction. It's never loving to affirm things that actually lead to harm and destruction. And so when he says that ultimately their end is their destruction, what Paul's saying, that's, that's why he weeps. He's brokenhearted because he sees where this trajectory is going to ultimately lead. And so he's brokenhearted because of his love for them. Now, the final outcome of these enemies, Paul says, is destruction. Now, the cross of Christ, I think it's important to say, when he talks about the cross of Christ here, uh, what he's really trying to point out two things. One, the cross of Christ is the means of our redemption, but the cross of Christ is also God turning everything in our world upside down. So he's saying that the way in which you thrive in life is actually upside down from the way the world tells you to thrive. That, that everything is not about your success and your achievement and your freedom to do it, to follow your desires, but ultimately it's learning to flourish under God's good care and trust his ways are better. And so he's going to flip everything on its head. And that really brings us to plumb line number six. Plumb line number six, as you think about discipleship, is where you aim your gaze determines where you take your steps. Where you aim your gaze determines where you take your steps. Verse 19, he says, their minds are set on earthly things. And he doesn't just mean that they kind of see stuff going on around the earth. What he's saying is their minds are fixated on these things. They've focused their minds with purposeful pursuit of this goal to, to pursue and take up just things that are earthbound. And so their minds are altogether earthbound. In verse 20, Paul contrasts that, the very next phrase. He says, their minds are fixed on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. So their minds are fixated on earth, Paul says, but our citizenship is actually in a whole different realm. We actually are focused in a different place. So rather than being focused on earth, our gaze is fixed on God and on his presence. Where your gaze is fixed is where your steps are going to follow. I don't know much about farming. I know that probably shocks those of you that know me. Um, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't even change my oil in my car. Like, I don't know how to do anything like, actually productive in the world. I think a lot and read a lot, but like all these other stuff, I don't know how to do most of it. But I'm told by old guys that in the old days, when they were trying to teach a young guy how to plow, part of what they would teach was that, that you, need, you, know, you wanted to do straight rows. And you can see, uh, you can look out. It. it always amazes me when I look out at fields and you see these perfectly perfect rows that they've cultivated and they've planted and they've got them there. And I always wonder, like, how do you stay in a straight line? Like, you watch, I watch you guys drive down the road and you guys are all over the place and you're probably texting and like your car. Like, how do you get a plow to go in a perfectly straight line? And what I was told was that, what the, that the, the way you do that is you actually, you don't look down at where you're going. You fix your eyes on a point way off in the distance and you, you stay very focused on that one thing and you drive right at it. And as you drive right at that point that you fixed in the, in the, in the, or out in the, in the distance, 
you'll continue to grow in a straight line, but it's when you take your eyes off that point and you begin to look around that you begin to waver. And that's what Paul's saying is that where we fix our eyes, where our gaze is, is where our steps are going to go. And so if your gaze is all earthward, or earthbound, you're going to wallow down here. And he says that's going to end up in a bad place for you. But if your gaze is on God and his presence in heaven, it's going to lift, your, it's going to lift you up so that your steps are going to go in a different direction. A.J. W. Tozer says this, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This, that, that can orient or reorient everything in your life. When you think about God, what you think about him, see, some of you think about God and you think he's a mean old curmudgeon that's, meant to, that's trying to take away all your fun. But if that's your perception of God, you're gonna, it's going gonna, it's gonna to shape your life in a negative way. Some of you think that God's a, just a wonderful grandfather that's going to love you and accept you no matter what. And if you think that's true, then it's not going to shape the way in which you live. That's why we need to come to the scriptures and we need to look and see the way God has revealed himself to us that we can understand who it is. Friends, where's your gaze? And are you, are you obsessed with just the stuff here? Do you ever stop and just turn off your devices and think about the Lord? Do you ever let him capture your mind's eye so that you begin to meditate and dwell and think upon him so that that gets to shape the way in which you live? It's interesting he says we're citizens of heaven. You know, when you're a citizen of a place, what you're saying is that's my true home. That, that's where I live. It means that, that our passports, when it says citizen of, your passport ultimately says that you're a citizen of heaven, that that's my ultimate home. That that's the place that I want to be. It, uh, many of you know my son's in Scotland in college, and it's kind of funny. He's been texting because we're getting to the play, getting kind of to the end of the semester, and so uh, my the college kids are about to come home. And uh, Luke was texting the other day, and it, we were having this kind of funny exchange, and he was like, "I just want to be hot again. I want to run and actually sweat. It's so cold here all the time." He's like, you know, and what he's saying is, I'm a citizen of Oklahoma. When I run, I'm supposed to sweat. And when I'm here, I don't ever get to just like completely, you know, just melt down in the heat. And, and he, he scheduled on our calendar and sent us an invite to this. And he said, like the first day back, he was like eating at Chick-fil-A, eating at Qdoba. Because he's saying, you know, which I'm like, surely we could do better. But you know how it is when you've been away from home for a long time, you just, you want something that tastes like home. And what he's saying is, I'm a student in Scotland, but I'm really a citizen of Oklahoma. And I want, to be back, I want to be back in my city, and I want to do my stuff, and I want to enjoy that place, because that's where his mind is focused. Friends, what Paul is saying is that the most true home that you have is not here. That yes, we're a citizen of Oklahoma, but the thing that's most true about us is you're a citizen of heaven. That's your home. That's the place we're meant to long for. That's the, main, the place that you're meant to salivate and think, oh, I can't wait to celebrate a meal with Jesus one day. When the food tastes perfect and nothing's overcooked. When everything's done just right. When I have the, the, the finest wine and we get to sit down and have a toast to the grace of God together. And I'm desiring that kind of world. I can't wait to run and dance and laugh. And I can't, I can't imagine in the new heavens and new earth, what is the animal realm going to be like? I don't know. But I just can't fathom what it would be like if it's better than this. But do you, do you hunger and thirst for that? 
Is that where your mind is focused? Do you just look and go, man, I, I'm enjoying everything here, but I can't wait to be home one day. That's what Paul's saying. We're citizens of heaven. And is heaven we're, we're citizens of heaven now, so our focus is heavenward now, but then we'll actually, it'll actually be glorious, and we'll get to enjoy it. So that's discipleship plumb line number seven. Always know where you're going. Always know where you're going. Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will return and transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. It's about the great reversal. What was, in, in the previous verses, what was for their glory is actually shame, but what was lowly in our bodies is actually going to become glorious. So right now our citizenship is already in heaven. He's saying, you're already a citizen of heaven but you're awaiting the return of the Savior that will take you there so that you can enjoy it. And that's the future transformation that we have to look forward to. Uh, Paul's making a, a certainty that everyone has faith in Jesus is already a citizen of heaven. Your place is secure. You've got a home to go forward to, to look forward to. In fact, that word he says, we eagerly await, just, it, it's meant to give you a picture of this kind of intense hope. This just like super intense I can't wait any longer for this. I'm eagerly awaiting, anticipating, expecting this thing to come through. It's the kid at Christmas time. It's like, I can't wait to open my presents. You just make me look at them every day under the tree, but I can't wait to get there. It's kids that are going through finals. They're like, summer, when is it going to get here? And you're dying to, to experience that freedom of summer in high school. And it's bigger than any of those things. He says that we're to eagerly await for him. And you notice what, it's interesting here, hope though is not just this kind of positive thinking or positive wishful thinking or, or, or kind of positive mindset. It's not just some abstract thing. Hope is a person. Hope in, in this passage is a person. He says, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's actually doing an interesting kind of play on words here. When he talks about him being a Savior, you know, in Rome, where Paul was writing from, uh, Caesar was called Savior all the time. And so Caesar was always the one that was like, Caesar, our Savior. What Paul is saying is, no, Jesus is the Savior, and he will subject by his power all things under his feet. So all earthly powers, Jesus is going to eradicate and subject them all underneath his feet and abolish all earthly authority, even death itself. That's the final reverse of all things that we get to experience in his coming. And Paul uses the same language all throughout this passage. But you notice what he says as he ends. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love, whom I long for, my joy and my crown, when I'm with Jesus, you, he says, all of those people that, that, I get to, that, that are following me and listening to what I'm saying, they get to be my, they're going to be my joy. We're going to stand in Jesus' presence together, and you're going to be my crown. The crown there is meant, it's like a race. And that day they didn't put medals on, but they put a crown uh, on their heads that said, this is, victor this is victorious. He says, you are my crown. So friends, as we think about this, his entire appeal is built on this kind of relational and this future joy that they're going to celebrate together. And he gets in verse 4.1, and he just says, so therefore, let us stand firm. So let me do the same for you. Friends, let's stand firm in the business of making disciples. Let's stand firm in following after Jesus and inviting others to follow alongside us by his grace. Let me ask you this question. Who's following you? And where are they going to follow you? 
Do you know where you're going? Because if you know where you're going and you fixed your eyes there and your feet are going to go, someone's going to follow you. And if it's all earthly things, then someone's going to follow you after earthly things. But if it's heavenly things, they'll follow you after heavenly things. But I think this is the question for us, is that when is that we begin to ask ourselves a question of, who are the people that are following me? Friends, you know when a, when a, health is really, a church is really healthy? is when this kind of stuff is just spontaneously happening all the time. When 7th and 8th graders are going, hey, would you just come on, let's go to youth group. Let's, let's learn to follow Jesus together. When people are stepping down to go serve in kids ministry and they're saying, they're sitting there and they're praying for a baby that they're holding and saying, Jesus, would you raise this one up to follow you? Would you work with them? And they're praying and they're just being a comforting presence in a kids class. When men, businessmen are grabbing hold of younger guys and going, hey, let's go to breakfast and talk about something other than Netflix and work. And they begin to talk about deeper things. When professional women are grabbing hold of others and saying, hey, let's, l- l- let me show you what it looks like to be a joyful, life-giving presence in a dog-eat-dog world. And, and they're coming alongside and just showing someone how to live. And when these things are spontaneously happening, there's this kind of waterline of the church just goes up. Because, because we're, we're growing as followers of Jesus. Friends, let me, ask, let me just ask you this. Who, who, are you, who are you taking hold of? Do you have someone? Do you know who your people are? Who's the one that you're coming alongside and saying, hey, follow me as we follow Jesus? Every one of us ought to have someone that we're taking, that we're taking forward. Those will be the people that will be your joy. They'll be your crown. They're the ones you give your life to. For the, for the sake of Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would make us people who run hard after Jesus, who press on and strain ahead for the higher call of knowing Christ. And Father, I pray that we would, by grace, take one another forward. Father, help us to trust your way is best. Help us to love well. And help us to invite others to learn alongside us, even in, the, even in our messes. Trust Jesus and to walk, walk in his ways. Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.